Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and on this, our penultimate edition of 2020, we've got a special guest for you. Joining us is none other than Stephanie Petrella, Editor-in-Chief of BMB Russia and Ukraine. We had two fairly disparate topics this time. Firstly, how does she go about building the brief, including our terrible subject lines? And second, we talked about the tech sector, fintech specifically, in Russia, as well as some of the political economy that goes along with it. We had a great conversation, and we hope you enjoy. Stephanie, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. So uh, to get things started right off the bat, uh, tell us a little bit about your history with The Brief, uh, the work you do with FPRI, and generally what your research focuses are right now. Sure. So I started working on The Brief a few years ago um, when you actually, when you handed over The Brief to Nick, I started working as one of Nick's deputies. So I had been working with FPRI for about a year at that point. Um, I was helping Chris Miller, who's the Eurasia director of FPRI, with a few different research projects here and there. And when the brief was changing hands, he thought that that I would be interested in playing a role in. So that's how I started working on the brief. Um, And then after Nick decided to transition off, um, I took over as the editor-in-chief of BMB. Um, And my research interests today honestly stem a lot from my time running the brief. So I'm very interested in Russia's political and economic issues and primarily fintech, which I think is a really big theme in Russian business and economic news these days and something that I've been focusing a lot on, um, how Russia's banks and technology companies are kind of blurring into one field and what some of the implications of that might be for regular Russians. Very interesting. And we're going to get there in a little bit. Um, but first, just since we've both been chief, I uh, wanted to ask you, uh, in your experience, and for the audience, uh, we haven't ever taken a meta look at the brief itself. So how do you go about making a news brief? Tell us about your process. So my process starts every morning. I basically wake up, go online, and I, I go to a few trusty websites um, in the Russian media. So I used to always go to Vietnamisti, Erbeka, and Commerçant. Um, over the years I've been doing this, the landscape of Russian media has shifted a bit. And so now I pretty pretty reliably always open um, Erbeka, Commerçant, and now V-Times, which is the new Vietnamisti after um, increasing censorship basically crushed Vietnamese's editorial independence. So I'll go on these different websites, um, read the headlines, think about which stories sound interesting, the ones that do sound interesting, I'll read through them. Um, and then a lot of times I'll sit on that for a little bit and see which stories really stick with me later in the day. Um, and one of the ways I like to think about it is which stories would I want to tell people who are not necessarily really keen Russia observers, which stories would be interesting to tell them about, and what are the the key points that um, could be interesting to a wider audience. And so that's how I try to think about what goes into the brief um, when I'm when I get to the point of putting it together. Very interesting and rhymes with, with my experience, certainly. Uh, curious in your tenure, because you get to watch Russia at a very granular level day in and day out. Has the country changed at all since you became editor-in-chief, or have there been any broad trends you've seen? I mean, COVID, certainly for one, um, but um, anything else? 
Yeah, definitely COVID. That has been a big one. Um, I think that some of the the recent stuff surrounding constitutional reform was very interesting. And that really was a pivotal moment in Russian history. And so it was cool to be able to see how that played played out on a on a week by week basis. Um, I think another trend that's been really interesting has been this consolidation of the banking sector and further consolidation of the tech sector. Um, there has been increasing Kremlin control, I think, in the tech sector. That's been really interesting to watch how that's developed. Um, and I think I think that those are probably the two biggest trends that when I open Erdbeka, for instance, I'll see a story about that and immediately know that's something I want to cover. We'll talk more again. Tech sector coming right up. Um, before we dive in further, though, one other, uh, I would say, fairly lighthearted question, but uh, we have at the brief part of the, I guess, branding, you could say, started way back when, pride ourselves on absolutely atrocious subject lines that are designed to make the poor readers at the very least roll their eyes. So what's your process for coming up with the bad wordplay that we we love so much? <laughs> Gosh, it's so bad. Um, <laughs> so basically what happens is I'll I'll finish the brief, and this is always the last thing I do, because it's funny, I remember when you and I had a call when I was taking over the brief, and you had a list of all these talking points that you wanted to discuss with me, and you got to the end of this call, we're like 30 minutes in at this point, and you're like, okay, I have something that's a bit sensitive that I want to broach with you. Um, and I, in my mind, I'm thinking like, what, what is he about to mention? <laughs> and then the next thing that comes out of your mouth was like, so, so puns are <laughs> a really part of the brief. And, um, and you really wanted to make sure that that lived on as part of the brief's reputation and brand. Um, and it's definitely not my strong suit. So I'm really trying to carry on the legacy that you and Nick created. Um, so I, unlike you, where it seems like the puns just used to slip off the tongue and you, as soon as you're writing the top story, you knew which one you wanted to use. I'll finish the brief and then I'll sit there for like sometimes 15, 20 minutes I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll leave my computer and go about doing different things, just hoping that some inspiration comes to me. Um, and so I'll think about the top story. I'll think about a bunch of different components of it. Are there any names involved? Are there any just like general words? Um, like the last brief was about software. So I started playing around with software in my mind. Um, then I started thinking about what words sound similar to those words. <laughs> and I honestly have started relying on this tool that is a little bit embarrassing to admit, but I go on rhyme zone sometimes and I use their phrases function. So you can look up a word and then click phrases and it'll tell you common phrases used with that word. And then it'll also do a search of like all the Wikipedia titles out there. Um, and so I'll read through that and see if there are any um, phrases that come up that could be applicable to the story. Um, and then ultimately I, I generally just settle on something and I think to myself, I hope people get this. That is dedication to the craft. Truly. Uh, Stephanie said before we started recording just for the record for listeners, uh, that she had a method and I asked her not to tell me until we were recording and I am duly impressed. Um, on the topic, do you have over your tenure, any favorite subject lines you've done? So one that I did the other day that 
I was entertained by was um, it was a story about the lead story was about how Mail.ru and Sparebank, their partnership is on the rocks. And I came up with the pun of marital troubles, like marital troubles, which I thought was pretty good. Um, Another one of my favorites was there were rumors early during early in the pandemic when Ms. Houston, um, the prime minister, when he contracted COVID, there were a flurry of rumors that he was actually going to be ousted as prime minister because he basically was he transferred his authority as prime minister to his first deputy um, while he was in the hospital. And there are rumors that he was never going to get back that authority. And instead, the first deputy was going to become the prime minister. And so the the pun I came up with that for that one was particularly bad, but I found it entertaining, which was Miss um, Houston or Miss out, which is terrible. It's terrible. But you mentioned though in the first one, male little troubles. Uh, what a segue! Truly, what a segue that is, um, because you bring up Mail.ru and Sberbank, uh, affectionately known as Sber, um, or not just affectionately. I think it's their official branding now. Um, yeah. So I think that's a great point or as good a point as any to transfer a little bit more to tech in Russia and specifically fintech. And at least in a lot of Western conceptions, um, Russia is this large country that produces oil and some uh, maybe raw materials and not much else, which is not really the case, although Russia certainly does produce and to a large extent depends on oil. Um, There are some pretty active other sectors, modern sectors, tech among them. So for someone who is only just learning right now, listening to this podcast, uh, that Russia, in fact, has a fairly vibrant tech sector with its you know, national specificities, what would you say about Russian tech? What does someone have to understand? So I think the most important thing to understand first are who the main players are. Um, and a lot of times these are compared to American companies, because that's a really easy way for people to understand it. So the first, the biggest tech company in Russia, and the one that's largely considered Russia's most innovative tech company, that's called Yandex. And the comparison that's often made is that Yandex is Russia's Google, because they run the country's, um, which is used really widely. The second company that someone should know about is Mail.ru Group. And this is often compared to Russia's Facebook because they own Vkontakte, which is the the Russian social network that's most similar to Facebook and looks, well, looks very similar to Facebook. Um, and so they also have a really widely used email platform. Um, and these two companies, Yandex and Mail.ru Group, they in many ways compete with each other um, directly. And they're by far the two biggest and two most innovative companies in Russian the Russian tech sector. Um, but one thing that's really interesting is that if you're talking about the biggest companies in Russian tech, you actually have to zoom out from the strict confines of the tech sector and look at Russia's largest bank as well. So um, Sparebank, as you mentioned, which has been rebranded to Spare because it's not just a bank anymore, um, is in many ways also a leader of tech in Russia. And the company CEO, um, Hermann Greff, he has stated for the past three years or so that Sparebank doesn't want to compete with traditional banks. They want to compete with Google and Amazon and Facebook and being considered one of the tech giants of the world. And so over the past years, 
he's led this transformation of the bank into a company that is increasingly purchasing innovative tech startups, but also investing really heavily in its own tech capabilities. So over the past, this summer, um, Sparebank had a conference where they unveiled a lot of new technology that included ATMs that operate via facial and voice recognition, that have these voice assistants like Amazon's Alexa or Apple's Siri. So Sparebank is releasing all these products that you generally would think of as coming from a tech company. And so I would say that those are the three main players that you need to look at if you're going to think about tech in Russia. So safe to say then, given you're talking about uh, Zber, I keep wanting to say Sberbank just because this is a fairly recent branding change. Um, right. But talking about Zber, um, seems like there's quite, and perhaps not surprising given kind of the shape of Russia's political economy, a high degree of consolidation in the tech sector, safe to say? Absolutely, I would say that. Um, curious though, does that actually seem to be affecting innovation? Is that better or worse? Kind of how does that how does that fit in to Russian political economy? Um, what does that mean for these developments? So I think that the consolidation of Russia's tech sector stems from the political and economic situation in Russia, and and not necessarily the other way around. Um, so one of the reasons that you have the largest bank in Russia becoming one of its largest tech companies uh, is because Russia, in many regards, lacks the venture funding that some other more developed countries like Serb Germany have. Uh, and there are some obvious reasons for this. One is that people don't generally think of Russia as this country that's the engine of global economic growth where you want to invest in these fast-growing businesses. That's one. Another one is that when you have these really high-profile cases of private equity investors like Michael Calvi getting jailed for almost two years, that doesn't really incentivize people to go to Russia and invest in firms there because there's always this fear that if I wrong or if I present too much of a challenge to the wrong people who are politically connected, I might end up in prison. So for those reasons, there's not a ton of venture funding in Russia compared to Western companies that or Western countries that Russia likes to compete with. And as a result, you have a situation where a lot of tech development is funded by these major companies. Sparebank has a ton of money. It has it holds 44% of Russia's retail deposits. So it's nearly half of all deposits in the country are at Sparebank. And and so it has pretty much unlimited capital to fund startups that it deems worthy. And that means that those startups are within its ecosystem. But I think as we kind of transition now to fintech specifically, which is a particularly, I would say, interesting, dare I even say, vibrant area uh, for the Russian tech sector, um, important to note that at least looking at fintech, um, despite the, I guess, state consolidation, at least in the literature and political economy, it's often associated with the lack of innovation. Uh, but I think it, it, the argument can be made that um, it hasn't really stymied innovation, at least in fintech. So actually turning to the kind of meat and potatoes here, tell us a little bit more about the fintech market in Russia. Again, for someone who hasn't really heard much about this. What, what do you have to know about um, 
kind of mobile finances and kind of the broader market specifically to Russia. Yeah, the first thing that's really interesting to note here is that there's a bit of a dichotomy in Russia, where on one hand, you have the fact that Russia's financial services are relatively underdeveloped, again, in comparison to Western peers. Russia, if anyone anyone who's visited Russia knows that it's a really cash-driven economy. You go to a store, you pay with cash. Um, in a recent survey, I think it was last November, 89% of Russians said they regularly use cash to make payments. Um, similarly, Russia doesn't have... Russian adults don't have bank accounts at the same rates that Western that, that adults do in Western countries. Um, they borrow way less from Russian banks than, say, Americans borrow from American banks. So on one hand, you have this underdeveloped financial sector by a lot of indications. On the other hand, Russians have shown this proclivity towards fintech services and are increasingly opting to use technology to do their banking. So... Uh, of the digitally active population in Russia, 82% use some type of a fintech service. Um, and so the way to look at this is that Russia is, is leapfrogging in terms of financial services. On one hand, it's not very developed, but as it develops, they're taking the, the best innovations from other countries and putting them in their system. So in Russia, what's interesting about the way fintech works is that it's not actually these little are challenging the incumbents like you see often in Western countries. Instead, it's the incumbents like Sparebank, VTB, um, now Tinkoff, that are incorporating more technology into their offerings in order to be competitive among each other. So regarding those relationships, I know they've been some fairly uh, tumultuous developments in recent months. You had a couple, as you said, male little troubles. Um, uh, divorces, essentially, of we had Mail.ru, we had Sparebank, some of these joint ventures falling through. Um, is that due to just friction from the regulatory side? Is it due to kind of differing views among shareholders? I think I've, I've read that was the case in, in a couple of these incidents. But uh, talk about kind of how, how investment, how these major players in the tech sector are getting involved in fintech. I think it has a lot to do personalities of the leaders of these companies. So the first venture that fell apart kind of dramatically was Sparebank and Yandex. And they, since 2013, were working together to develop Yandex Money, which is Russia's largest online payment system. And they also formed a joint venture later down the line to develop a e-commerce marketplace. So think about like Russia's Amazon. And there were rumors that this joint venture was not going well and that there are a lot of disagreements over who ultimately was controlling what and who got a say on what decisions. And as a result of these disagreements, the, the joint venture broke down and they separated their assets and went their separate ways. And so the story here was basically that Sparebank wanted more control, I think, over the day-to-day -day operations and strategic decisions in some of these um, joint ventures. Most recently, if you fast forward, you have Tinkoff and Yandex were considering, well, so Yandex was considering acquiring Tinkoff. And that was really celebrated in the markets. People thought this was really exciting because it would create this large fintech company that could actually challenge Sparebank. And 
a month later, that fell through. And if you look at why that fell through, it was Oleg Tinkoff, who was who's the head of the founder of Tinkoff Bank, um, who basically torpedoed the deal because he said that he wasn't having enough, wasn't going to have enough control in Tinkoff's management after the acquisition. Um, so you see this happening, playing out multiple times on the in the media where, you know, Graf at Sparebank wants more control over joint ventures and Sparebank thinks, you know, we're the largest bank in Russia. We should be able to control the things that we invest in. And then you have, for instance, Tinkoff that says, I created this bank that's really innovative and is providing you the opportunity to develop fintech. Like I should be able to continue controlling this bank. And it seems like these disagreements between big players in Russia's tech sector are the reason that some of these deals end up falling through. Gotcha. Um, now, I think it's helpful to importance to note um, that there's a lot of kind of buzzwords with tech, fintech, algorithms, X, Y, Z. But what does what does for like your average Russian when you are doing fintech, when you need to access financial services? So in the case of Tinkoff Bank, um, mm-hmm. there's no physical branches. Like, what does it actually mean for a consumer to access fintech? The way that fintech is developing in Russia is these large banks are focusing on building ecosystems, which again is another buzzword. But basically what this means is that they're trying to think about what are the services that Russians use on a day-to-day basis? Like they need to order food, they need to get groceries, they need to get a taxi, they need to book doctor's appointments and hair appointments, they need to buy cars and get auto loans. Let's get all of these companies and unite them within our within our ecosystem so that when Russians enter our app, they're able to do everything that they need on a day-to-day basis. So the idea is that Tinkoff, for instance, launched a super app last year, which means that you, you don't ever need to leave Tinkoff's app to do any of those services that I just mentioned. And that's the way that FinTech in Russia, the big banks are really focusing on developing FinTech um, and the way that it will be most apparent in Russians' lives. So what you're saying is that it's not just the banks and tech players themselves that are consolidating. It's the actual user experience. Exactly. Very interesting. But I think it's worth noting that, I mean, these are these are services, these these apps, this technology is something, at least, you know, here in the States that isn't isn't available. So Russia has essentially leapfrogged a lot of these countries. Um, is there something... Not to, not to make uh, a tenuous comparison here, but is there something ever so, I don't know, Leninist about that, where uh, you know a country that doesn't have a fully developed traditional banking sector just skips that step entirely? Yeah, you could you could say that they're telescoping the stages <laughs> um, if you want to you want to adapt a historical analogy. And I think that one thing, if you want to take that historical analogy a step further, one thing that's interesting is that they're telescoping the stages. This Basically, it's the state that's telescoping the stages. Uh, it's a state-run institution, Sparebank, that is really leading this charge and is taking Russia from an underdeveloped financial system to one of the few countries that has a super app, the other one being China, for instance. So it's a, it's a state-run initiative in many ways. So let's kind of take a step back or, or zoom out a little bit. So as far as Russia's ability to compete as a tech player, I know AI policy is certainly another a huge focus for the state now. 
Um, are these you know, super giants, uh, are, are they looking outward mostly or is this still kind of consolidation uh, aimed at growing its share of the Russian market? I think it's still focused on the Russian market for the most part. For instance, if you're Yandex, I don't think that Yandex's thought is, I want to compete with Google in France. I think they're thinking we need to beat Sparebank within Russia and get Russian customers to come to our app and use our mapping services, our market online marketplace, um, our system for booking restaurant tables, and just stay there. And so I think that that's what the current competition is about right now. And yet at the same time, I think it's also safe to say that Russia's tech players have had a bit of help from their friends in high places, um, as it were, kind of cycling back to the very last edition of BMB Russia, um, talking about how uh, Russia is now mandating that uh, Russian-built apps come on iPhones and other pieces of technology, among other things. So... Does the state have generally a good relation with these players? I know there's been some friction with the central bank. So I guess let's let's talk about that relationship, kind of the interface between the state and these tech players. Generally positive, does it depend where or depend on what sector? What would you say? It definitely depends on the players. So there are two examples to talk about here. The first is Yandex and the Kremlin. And then the second one now is um, Sperbank and the central bank. So Yandex and the Kremlin... This was a, a big theme last year where Yandex is free-floated on the NASDAQ and it's based in the Netherlands, like technically domiciled in the Netherlands. And last year, some parliamentarians from United Russia, this very little known deputy, introduced legislation that would restrict foreign ownership in Russia's key internet resources, which was interpreted to mean Russia's tech companies. So this um, mirrors the legislation that was implemented in the, the media sector. So news outlets can't have over 20% foreign ownership. And they were trying to do the same thing in the tech sector, which means that Yandex would either have to dramatically change its ownership structure, or it was going to not be able to place ads within Russia, which is a key source of its revenue. So basically, it would put the company out of business. And... What ended up happening was that Yandex came to a deal with the Kremlin and they created this public interest foundation that the Kremlin ultimately got some, some stake in. So the Kremlin now feels that Yandex is sufficiently under, not under state control, but it can't be transferred to, to foreign hands or to parties that the Kremlin thinks would subvert Russia's national interests. So prior to this shift, Yandex and the Kremlin definitely had a bit of an icy relationship um, and Yandex was somewhat excluded from a lot of tech development initiatives that were run by the state. Now that this shift has been made, the ownership changes have been implemented, um, Yandex has more come into the fold, and that relationship has eased a little bit. Um, the second one to talk about here is Sparebank and the central bank. So the central bank is becoming increasingly worried about Sparebank's monopolization of both the financial sector and the tech sector. And they're starting to make some moves that exert regulatory pressure on Sparebank and intend to stimulate competition. The first was that last year, the central bank implemented a fast payment system, which basically allows Russians to 
text one another, use a, use a phone number to transfer funds. So it's mobile, mobile transfers. And they mandated that every single bank in the Russian financial system, especially the systemically important ones, um, connect to the system. And that massively undercut Sparebank's advantage in mobile transfers, because Sparebank at this time was by far and away the leader. Um, now the central bank is considering a couple of other regulatory proposals that would also potentially undercut Sparebank's lead in certain areas and stimulate competition for Sparebank. The first is a proposal for a digital ruble, and this is still in the very early stages of of development, so it's not clear what this is actually going to look like or if or when this is going to be implemented. But there have been some discussions of allowing Russians to have digital ruble bank accounts at the central bank. And Sparebank takes some issue with this, saying that, well, that effectively puts the central bank in direct competition with commercial banks. And the leading commercial bank is Sparebank. So that's one thing. The second thing is that the central bank is now considering reforming its financial licensing system to switch from a focus on institutions to activities. So what this would do is if a change like this were made, it would allow companies like Yandex, for instance, to get licenses to implement a payment system without having a full banking license, which is a lot more onerous to acquire. So there's disruption kind of moving back and forth between essentially the state, even have the state itself, it sounds like, as a disruptive player. Now, curious um, as a last point here, if we could kind of compare and contrast, because we talked about, we talked about Yandex, we've talked about Sber or Sberbank. Um, this kind of looks very different than the experience of say, Telegram. So is it a question of kissing the ring? What kind of determines whether a a tech startup, an app is is kosher. Yeah, Telegram certainly did not want to cooperate with the security services. And that's what kind of sealed its fate as a rival of the state. And obviously, after the state tried to shut it down repeatedly and failed, they have now said, OK, it's fine. Um, but the real issue there is that it was, the Telegram is really well encrypted, and Pavel Dorov, who runs Telegram, was basically like, well, I'm not giving you the encryption keys for this. Um, this is an independent piece of technology that that you don't get your hands on. Um, whereas Sparebank is run by a very well politically connected, um, you know, the former economy minister of Russia, and it's owned by the government of Russia. So... The government has no problems in allowing it to to grow and thrive. And so as a final point, we talk about kind of Russia's political economy as a very elaborate system for distributing rents. Um, is the tech sector, it always struck me, you know, back in my, my brief days, um, struck me that kind of the more Russia piled into disruptive technology and AI, it just means that it's a, a brand new sector, you know, in, in, a, in a country where oil and gas is less reliable now as a means of distributing rent. Um, it just became um, an extra kind of a, an extra bonus for the powers that be. Would you agree with that characterization? Yeah, I think that if you are a bright Russian who wants to go into some business sector where you'll make a lot of money, I think that being in the executive leadership of Sparebank is probably a pretty lucrative place to be. It's definitely a growing sector um, and 
that's a company that has control of it. So I think that the Kremlin is increasingly viewing the banking sector and the tech sector as strategic sectors in the same way that it viewed the oil sector previously, and obviously still does. But I think that that would certainly be the future of Russia's political economy. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Stephanie for joining. Now, I'm not going to wish you Znovim Godem, Russian for Happy New Year, just yet, because we've got one more edition coming out before the new year. Stay tuned for updates. And be sure to follow BNB Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BNB Russia and Ukraine is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and on others, be sure to visit fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.